Well, good evening. Thank you for coming back. I want to plug two books that I think you might find helpful. Uh, One is the book from which I got the title of this course. It is called Revelation Unwrapped, and um, it's by John Richardson, and it's a fantastic small introduction. It's only 80 pages or so, and it gives you a very helpful overview. I found it immensely helpful in my preparation. I thoroughly recommend it. It's nice and thin, cheap, and it's got a slightly bizarre picture on the front. But apart from that, it's a very helpful book. And uh, another one I found helpful is Paul Barnett's book in the Reading the Bible Today series uh, called Revelation, Apocalypse, Now and Then, uh, published by Aquila Press. You can get hold of it through the Good Book Company, and uh, you would find that useful as well. Incidentally, if you haven't come across the Bible Speaks Today commentary by Michael Wilcock, uh, which is an absolute classic, I'd recommend that as well, but these are two perhaps you've not heard of. Uh, What I want to do in the first session today is to basically work through chapter 5 of Revelation. So it's going to be a bit more like a sermon again, uh, but there'll be time for questions and discussion uh, later and certainly in the second half. Uh, So it'd be great if you could have Revelation 5 open in front of you. And I'm going to read the whole chapter. Seems a pretty good place to start. So chapter 5 beginning at verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they'll reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. 
the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Now hopefully you've all got the booklet and we are on page seven. Now, as I begin, I hope you don't mind me asking you rather a personal question. But I feel I have to. And that is to ask you, are you a bigot? I ask it knowing full well what you want to say. I know it because I want to say it as well. It is a word with very negative connotations in this country. And so we all want to shout out a resolute no. None of us wants to be described or thought of as a bigot. It carries connotations of people who are intolerant and prejudiced. And the problem in in our culture is that uh, we're obsessed with tolerance. But it's a tolerance that actually has overlooked. Our obsession has has been such that we've overlooked the, the fact that tolerance can all too often bring its own prejudices, as we will see. We can be so concerned to be sensitive from people to people from other cultures and other parts of the world that we actually find ourselves discriminating against them. Not only that, we find ourselves compromising what we believe. Now, if bigotry is simply a matter of holding firmly to our beliefs, then maybe the insult is unavoidable these days. But if bigotry is a matter of prejudice, well, we must be careful, mustn't we? And I guess we can all find ourselves uh, guilty of this. But I want to suggest that actually we might be bigots without really realizing it. And hopefully by the time I finish this half of the evening, we'll know one way or the other. You'll know already, and certainly from last week, that the book of Revelation is a book of wide-angle lenses and taught emotions. It takes us by the scruff of the neck and pulls us through a view of God's plans for the world, and it takes us kicking and screaming if need be, so that we're forced to see things the way God sees them. And this passage tonight is uh, one that does just that. And the emotions run very high indeed. But I'm pretty sure that our comfort or rather our sort of self-satisfied comfort, was never the author's intention. And I think that actually this chapter contains two almost violent emotions, agonized despair followed by overwhelmed relief and joy. And they were felt by John the Apostle as he was led through, I guess what you could describe, a sort of multimedia virtual reality vision. And yet his emotions in the face of these visions was as real as they could be. And I think I want to take the two in turn. And like any good counsellor, we need to get to the bottom of what made his emotions so extreme. So are you sitting comfortably? And the first thing is that there's something to cry about. Just listen to that first paragraph again, just looking out for the emotions this time. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept 
and wept. Because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Now, you might think that weeping uncontrollably, uh, you know, someone just um, being unable to open a letter is a bit of an overreaction. Because in a sense, that's all this is. And I guess it would provide all kinds of fertile ground for a counsellor's probing, you know, trying to get at, you know, John's relationship with his mother or something like that to try and find out what his problem was. Why the total despair, as you see in verse 4? Not even being able to look inside. I mean, you can imagine the scroll being sort of holed up and looking down the tube, if you like. You can't actually see the words in it. But of course, that's being flippant, and it is to miss the point entirely. The focal point is this scroll, but we're never actually explicitly told what it is. We only know that it had writing on both sides and that it is sealed with these seven seals. But what actually was written on it? I mean, I guess we can all imagine the sort of seals, you know, with wax and signet rings and so on. Uh, But what was the writing? Now, it's significant that it's written on both sides, I think. It was crammed full with no room for anyone to squeeze any other text on it at all. So it was absolutely chock-a-block with writing. But it remained unopened and therefore unread. The seals remained sealed, the wax looking as pristine as the day when it was first pressed by the divine signet ring. A not unreasonable guess is to assume, therefore, that this scroll contained all of God's plans for the rest of human history from this point. And as John's vision proceeds, that certainly fits with what's going on. Everything was written... Everything was planned in minute detail. The scroll was crammed full with information. It's just a matter of time before it would come to pass. Now, we know that from chapter 6, the breaking of each seal would bring with it judgment and destruction, the destruction of man's inhumanity to man. We'll see that after the break tonight. And then once open, the plans for wrapping up history as outlined in the document would come to pass. It's a sort of blueprint, an overview of the future. But not yet. And I guess that is why John was so desperate. It's as if the Lord had it all ready, but for some reason was just holding back. It's as if he'd written the ultimate, the perfect script for a play, But it was unseen because there wasn't a single actor up to play the main part. They say that uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet is still the Everest of the acting world. It it places monumental demands on an actor, with the vast majority of lines going to Hamlet in what is a four-hour play. Well, this part in this play far outstrips even Hamlet for complexity Intricacy, not to mention the sacrificial commitment on the protagonist's part required for doing justice to this part. This is immense. And so it's as if this great script has to remain unstaged. There's just no one up to the job. The script is waiting. But there isn't anyone worthy even to read out the title page. Not even Kenneth Branagh or Al Pacino or anyone like that could pull this off. And that is all so incomprehensible, isn't it? 
Why should God make plans and then leave them bound up in a dusty old library? It doesn't make sense. I mean, John can see the world is in a mess. We were thinking a bit about that last week. He sees the injustices and the agonies around. He sees the way in which tribe conquers tribe, power-hungry individuals wreak havoc. Uh, He sees a world divided and plundered, a world living without their creator God at the center. He sees the sort of world where people can kill their neighbors on the grounds of so-called ethnic cleansing such as is going on in Congo and Darfur, even as we sit comfortably here. John sees it all, and he just doesn't get it. And quite frankly, nor do I, much of the time. And not only that, he himself had suffered at the hands of those who were bringing about grave injustices. Here he is, sitting on this remote, barren Desperate little island, just because of his beliefs. And in his despair, he cries and cries and cries, because what else is there to do? I think there is a challenge there. I don't know whether the news makes you weep, but perhaps it should. Not just because of the innocent suffering that is everywhere. But weep because you're wondering, where is God? And what is he playing at? Why doesn't he do something? So the sealed scroll brings tearful frustration. But there's something else that's quite weird about this. Because we find that actually the vision he has is out of date. And he has to travel back in time, or rather we have to travel back in time to work out what's going on. You see, in the grand scheme of John's vision, we have gone back in time. It's almost as if John has been transported not only into heaven, but also back around 60-odd years. Now, you're probably thinking, what am I talking about? But actually, in John's vision... It's as if he's gone back to a few years just before Jesus' earthly ministry. Because that's the only explanation for John's despair. After all, he was an apostle, a messenger of the good news of Jesus. He had preached hope to people who felt the very despair he was experiencing in his vision. He preached that hope. He'd written John's gospel to preach that hope, to explain that hope, to preach the light of the world. But it's as if in this vision, John has been taken back in time to remind him of what it was like without Christ. What it was like in God's world to lack the hope he brings. And I guess even John had forgotten that. But once he's reminded, it is clear why the tears of despair can be wiped away, perhaps to be replaced by tears, yes, but of joy. Because there's also something to shout about. Look at verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Don't weep. 
See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. He is able. Hallelujah! All that despair is now swallowed up. It's overcome because there is somebody who can open the scroll, which means that there is somebody who can now fulfill God's plans for the world. So they're not bound up and tied on the top shelf in the divine library. God's purposes will prevail, and the person for the job is precisely the one you'd expect. The Lion of Judah. The Root of David. Now, do you remember last week we saw how the the book of Revelation is absolutely soaked through with biblical imagery and, and resonance? So we don't need to look at our newspaper or uh, sort of the Oxford English Dictionary or anything else to try and find out what it means. We need to read our Bible. And of course, language like the Lion of Judah and Root of David, these are Bible words, Bible concepts. And Bible words always have Bible meanings. And so we've got to be careful to work out what they are. And so the Lion of Judah is actually mentioned way back in Genesis 49. And uh, Jacob blesses his 12 sons and their families. You remember at the uh, end of uh, Genesis? Actually, we're going to be doing this soon in the evening services in our series on Joseph. But you can see here that uh, Jacob's blessing Judah. And he describes Judah as a lion's cub. And get this, from whose line a ruler of Israel will come. A remarkable thing to say all those centuries before. Genesis 49, verses 9 to 10. But also, the root of David is another image, and that comes from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11. And that refers to David's father, Jesse, who was to be an ancestor ancestor of the future savior Messiah in Judah's line. And in other words, therefore, in the grand biblical scheme of things, we've been expecting a king to come for generations. Way back from Jacob's uh, blessing of his son Judah. Way back in Genesis 49, we've been waiting for someone from that tribe to end up as king of this nation. And when you get to Isaiah 11, we find that actually the image is taken beyond even David. And it says someone else descended from David, will take on the throne. And at last for John, you see, the Lion King has arrived. And he's triumphed. God's plans with humanity can be opened because one able and worthy to, play, to bring it into play has arrived. Weep no more, or if you weep for joy... And so in the narrative of Revelation 5, John naturally, having heard this, looks around to see who this great, awesome figure is going to be. And you might imagine, I guess, if you've seen Narnia and seen sort of the images of Aslan come pounding down the mountain in all his impressive glory, I guess that's what John might have expected, don't you think? An imposing king of the beasts 
to rear his impressive mane and heed um, and bring the whole of the multitudes before him to bow before him. But John looks and is absolutely stunned. Because in verse 6, he sees a sheep. And at first sight, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Now, you might be useless at zoology, but it's unlikely that you're going to get big sheep um, get sheep and big cats confused. But John's surprise in the midst of his vision exactly echoes the surprise and the shock that countless people experienced when Jesus himself first appeared in Galilee around 60 years or so before. If they were expecting an impressive monarch to come in all his regalia and glory and entourage and impressiveness, then they were going to be woefully disappointed. You see, when Jesus appeared, he was the last person you'd expect to be God's appointed Messiah on earth. He's a carpenter from up north. What on earth can he do? Now, what John sees next deepens the confusion further. Look at verse 6 again. I saw a lamb looking as though it had been slain. Now, this is not far from it, the idyllic image of a young sheep gambling in the meadows in springtime. How lovely. No, this lamb's wool is smeared and matted with dried blood. The wounds are gaping for all to see. By rights, to look at it, it should have been dead. But John sees this slain lamb standing in the center of the throne. The center of attention. Standing where the God of heaven and earth sits. Now, you might think this is the stuff of nightmares or the subject of surrealist paintings by Salvador Dali or something like that. And in a sense, it is grotesque. I mean, they say, don't they, that, uh, you know, in your dreams, the mind sort of sorts through and and, uh, works through all the different confusions of each day. And Revelation sometimes feels a bit like that. And it will increasingly feel like that as we go on. Uh, Lots of significant ideas, lots of sort of metaphors and images, all sort of jumbling together. And again, I guess counselors would go nuts here with John, don't you think? So perhaps this perplexing vision is merely a bizarre dream produced by a fertile imagination. But not in this case. You see, what John sees in his vision is merely the aftermath or the action replay of events that actually happened in history. And they were not the product of John's fertile imagination. They were the product of God's fertile imagination. This was God's idea. It was God's idea to raise up a lion king to come to save his people. But it was also God's idea for the the one who is the lion also to be the sacrificial lamb executed on a cross. The lamb will be slain 
stapled down to a wooden crossbeam and suffocated. But that would not be the end of him. He would come and reign on God's throne in heaven forever with the constant reminder of what he'd done. The lamb who looks as if he'd been slain. The scars are there for all to see. Stands in the center of the throne. You see, what John sees here is nothing short of the triumph of the risen, ascended Jesus Christ, returning to heaven and sitting on the throne of God. If you were here in church on Sunday morning, that's exactly what we were thinking about when we looked at Acts chapter 1. And throughout eternity, no one will ever be able to forget what he's done. The scars will be there to remind the forgetful. The Lamb that had been slain. And so John can stop weeping. Because now at last, the final chapters in God's plans for the world can kick into gear. So verse 7, he came. Can you imagine the anticipation of this moment? He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And after he had done that, the assembled crowds worshipped him. Worship. You only do that for God. But this is what they're doing in heaven. And at last, with jubilant relief, they can see that the scroll will gather dust no longer. And so they sing a new song. A truly new song. You hear people often talking about, you know, let's sing a new song to the Lord. And yeah, okay, it's good if someone writes some new songs and we constantly need new songs and I love new songs. But this is the only new song, the last great new song, the greatest new song that ever has been or ever will be. I feel a bit restless when people say, you know, let us sing a new song to the Lord because this is it. And for us, I guess it's no longer new and yet it's still magnificent. Nothing in history, in eternity, before or since, has been as worthy of a new song as this moment. Nothing. This is truly magnificent and mind-blowing. It's so earth-shatteringly wonderful that everyone in heaven has a go at singing this song. The four living creatures, the elders, and um, in verses 8 to 10, and uh, they all rejoice with the billions of angels that are too many to count. And then, not to be left out, every living creature on the planet in verses 13 to 14. I mean, just think about that. Just think what an incredible sound that must be. And they'll actually sing in tune. I mean, I don't know what it's, uh, how you find it. Um, Singing is great, and singing in church is great, isn't it? But there's invariably someone near you who's sort of singing several feet below everybody else or above, or sharp, or flat. And, you know, fantastic, you've got to admire their pluck. But this is just going to be true, true, glorious, eternal harmony. 
And perhaps this great celestial harmony will be the greatest proof of miracles yet. But you see, the first song in verses 9 to 10 sets the pace for all the other singers, and indeed, for the rest of the book of Revelation. Look at verse 9. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe, language, people, nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Please grasp the fundamental link between what the Lamb has achieved by being slain and the Lamb's worthiness to open the scrolls. You see, he's worthy to take the scrolls. Why? Because he is the Lamb who was slain. There is a profound and necessary link between the two. And then fascinatingly, and just to sort of glance back to chapter 4, we find in chapter 4, there's another song, an older song, which says of God, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power. Why? Because you created all things. And by your will, they were created and have their being. The two great songs of heaven that rejoice in the two great victories of God. His awesome creation and his truly mind-blowing redemption. You are therefore worthy, our God. So, you see, it was because Jesus went to the cross in absolute obedience to God's plan to rescue God's people that he is worthy and therefore trusted with the responsibility for opening the scrolls to unleash God's purposes. He's the Lord of lords and the King of kings with all authority on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and rightly so, he's worthy of it. Now, that really is something to shout about. What a wonderful and awesome reality it is. I mean, I'm I'm running out of great words. I mean, you know, I feel sort of puny and pathetic. There's, you know, there's a limit to the number of times you can say fantastic and awesome and mind-blowing. I guess in heaven we'll have a whole new vocabulary to describe God. But you see, the true victory is that of his death. Do you remember last week again we saw that actually the fundamental message of the book of Revelation is the finished victory of Christ. And that is the subject of the, the heavenly hymn book. The language of redemption. Uh, The nearest, I suppose, we can understand for redemption is the idea of buying slaves back and restoring them to freedom. Uh, I I suppose, you know, maybe someone these days who's um, been kidnapped and a ransom is paid for them to be released. And when that uh, ransom is paid, the person is free. Well, Jesus has paid the price with his blood. And he was indiscriminate. That's the key here. He's indiscriminate. He wasn't bothered about any of the social niceties or distinctions that uh, occupy our minds. He wasn't bothered. He didn't care if they were posh or not, towny or yokel, gay or straight, youthies or oldies, western or eastern, southern or northern. He didn't care. He wanted everybody. 
He wanted them to come to him for life and to live for him in his liberating and life-transforming way. His appeal was indiscriminate. And that's why it says from every tribe and language and people and nation. I really don't think that the word every there is an exaggeration. He did it to buy people back. And that's why Christians are not racist or bigots, or at least why we shouldn't be. We are not to be racist because Jesus was not racist. He was indiscriminate, unprejudiced in his love. That is why in verse 10 the song goes on, You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. In other words, those who've come to Christ, those bought by the blood of the slain lamb, now act as priests as intermediaries with those who don't know Christ. Those bought are therefore now to tell the world that they can share in that liberation too. A few months ago, I was reading about the origins of the British missionary movement at the end of the 18th century, and it was very striking because it was written by someone who, as far as I know, is not a Christian at all. So he's one of those sort of secular historians. Uh, wanting just to find out what happened, because it was a phenomenon that was uh, pretty unique, certainly up until that point, and it had major impact. And um, at the time, of course, Britain found itself with a growing empire, and Christians, while being aware of many of the traps being in an imperial nation presented, saw the opportunities and the urgencies very clearly. And this is how the author of the book put it. Behind the drama of new discoveries of foreign lands lay more worrying questions for the evangelicals. Why did British Christianity, with the means at hand, lack a missionary history? When had there last been a serious missionary movement amongst Christians anywhere? For a religion, and this is this secular historian, for a religion that had no racial prerequisites and whose first apostles had become missionaries throughout the Roman Empire, telling those they converted to go and do likewise to the end of the world, it was unsettling for all British evangelicals in the 18th century to realize how greatly the momentum towards a notion of world Christianity had slowed. Now, the whole momentum to take the gospel out had more or less stopped until only about 200 or so years ago, which is quite an extraordinary thing. And now we truly see the fruits. And I guess, actually, the fact of who we are in this room and in this church is a, is a testimony to that, not just of British missionaries, of course, but, but to the fact that, actually, the gospel truly is global these days. And Christianity is genuinely global with more Christians in places like Nigeria and South Korea than in the whole of Europe. But we mustn't miss the challenge. You see, we often talk about racism being wrong because of our creation. So it's a common and important argument to say we share a common humanity, a common heritage of what it is like to be human, regardless of our skin color or place of birth fundamental, foundational. But actually, that's not the New Testament's argument against racism. The New Testament, and in particular this passage, effectively argues it's wrong to be racist because of redemption, because of Jesus' blood. 
That blood has bought at incredible cost the lives of people from every skin color, social group, and network imaginable. How can we be superior or bigoted when we know that? Now, I want to read from that book I mentioned about the foundation of the London Missionary Society that happened in 1794. And at the launch service in a church in Covent Garden, a Scottish preacher named David Bogue gave a very fiery sermon, and uh, it was quoted in this book. And here's an extract. I certainly won't attempt the accent. But this is what David Bogue said in his sermon. We are commanded to love our neighbors as ourselves. And Christ has taught us that every man is our neighbor. You were once pagans living in cruel and abominable idolatry. The servants of Jesus came from other lands to this country and preached his gospel among you. Hence your knowledge of salvation. And ought you not, as an equitable compensation for their kindness, send messengers to the nations which are in the like condition with yourselves of old, to entreat them that they may turn from their dumb idols to serve the living God and to wait for his son from heaven. Verily their debtors you are. Now his point is that we are no different and in similar need of redemption, of rescue, as the rest of the world is. But in the sermon he develops his argument very strikingly. He implies that not to take the gospel to the lost would make us guilty of bigotry. It would be racist not to let people hear about Jesus. It would be racist to deny the Muslim or the Hindu the chance to enjoy Christ's forgiveness. It would be prejudiced to keep atheists from knowing the one true living God. It would be bigotry and arrogance in the extreme. Just assume that it is something just to keep to ourselves. You see, where Jesus was indiscriminate, his followers have become discriminatory. They were effectively deciding who they thought was worthy of hearing the gospel, even though the gospel says that whoever you are, whatever you've done, wherever you live, the blood of the slain lamb has already bought your freedom for free, gratis, by grace. That is bigotry in the extreme, isn't it? That, I would suggest, is real racism. It was present in the 18th century amongst people who were opposed to the idea of world missions, and there were many, even within the Church of England, who said, you shouldn't do that. And there are many people who say it today. Don't think that it is a new fashion to find that unpopular. I wonder if you see the twist in the tale, therefore. The world calls those who want to reach the world for Christ bigots. We are assumed to be intolerantly holding to our beliefs. How dare you impose your beliefs on other people, they say. And yet, from the Bible's perspective, not to tell them about Christ is itself a form of bigotry and discrimination. To water down the gospel and say it only applies to those from a so-called Christian West is absolutely absurd. We'd never have been Christian in the West if our ancestors had thought that and been prejudiced against us. Why did they come to Britain in the first place over a thousand years ago? So it all boils down to which belief or viewpoint you hold more strongly, doesn't it? The gospel of Jesus or the convictions of relativism? 
of saying Jesus, the Lion King, who is the slain lamb, is the absolute truth, or of saying that there is no such thing. That's the choice. But I guess even more than that, it boils down to who motivates your love more. Jesus or the relativists? It's a harsh and tough choice, isn't it? But how can it not be the choice that exists? So I ask again, are you a bigot? I'm afraid, in a sense, there's absolutely no way out of this one. You're either going to be called a bigot by the world or by Jesus. So who would you rather? But there's another 21st century shift in all this. I think a major shift is required because the funny thing is that I do not think that as a whole, Western churches are now being bigoted to churches in Africa and Asia and South America. I think we are all too aware of the centuries of exploitation and many of us feel a right desire to undo that damage. We have a sort of post-colonial angst in this country. And I think churches like All Souls have been good at thinking about the needs of the global church. But the twist is that we must now work out whether or not we're discriminating against those closer to home. We're actually very good at thinking of the needs of the world out there and sending off our mission partners and spending money on them and supplying their needs and praying for them and so on. But actually, as I used to say to my students in Uganda, Africa is no longer the dark continent. It's Europe. Europe is the dark continent. The gospel is spreading like mad everywhere else except Europe. Do you want to join those speaking modern European languages on that last day? French, Spanish, Flemish, German. Yeah, we know there's going to be a lot of Swahili in heaven. There's going to be a lot of Mandarin in heaven. There's going to be a lot of Korean in heaven. A lot of South American, Spanish, and Portuguese. But Flemish? We mustn't discriminate against Europe. And I say this, bizarrely enough, as someone who is absolutely committed to the church in Africa, and we spent many years there, and we're still committed and still do things for it, and there are huge, huge needs. But actually, Africa has the manpower and the zeal to reach the world for the gospel. They just need resources and training. But here we are with this extraordinary thing. If you're a European citizen, you can live anywhere. You don't need a work permit. You can live anywhere. I've got a friend who is um, planting, involved in planting a church in the north of England. He's actually American. He's come over for several years with his whole family to this country. And in about a year's time, uh, he will qualify for getting a full British passport. And the reason he's done that is that means he will be able to live in Belgium. And his heart, for years, has been to plant churches in Belgium. There's no way he'd get a visa as an American to do that. But as a British subject, he can just walk straight in. What an amazing opportunity. It's a bit like the Roman Empire that enabled Paul to travel throughout as a Roman citizen. We've got the resources, and we've got a high degree of people compared to the rest of the continent in this country. We're a Trojan horse for the gospel. Now, I'm well aware that um, saying all this can have the impact of uh, making just people feel guilty. I hate just being told to do evangelism. (laughs) 
because I just think, oh, I'm rubbish at it, and I feel bad about it. Let me close this half of the evening with an encouraging story and an encouraging vision, I guess, to spur us on, not to be gospel bigots, but to bring anyone who can to know the wonderful and awesome Jesus. A young man joined a church in America where the Bible was regularly taught, and he was deeply troubled by some of the emphases of the preaching and uh, what the pastor and his team were saying. I guess some people, well, I know that happens at All Souls. People come and talk to us and say, Oi, what are you saying that for? But anyway, this guy goes up to the pastor and says, Look, I really like the teaching at this church, but it's this constant pressure to get on doing evangelism that gets to me. I just want to curl up into a little ball whenever I'm told to do evangelism, and it just gets me angry and frustrated, and I just can't face doing it, and so I feel guilty, so I just wish you'd shut up. The pastor just looked at him and said, Okay, don't do it then. This guy was completely nonplussed by that. It was the last thing he was expecting to be told. What do you mean, don't do it, evangelism? I I thought you were always on about that. And the guy said, yeah, but don't do it if you don't want to. It's a free country, you don't have to do it. Fine, don't do it. Stop getting yourself on a huge guilt trip about it. Just don't do it. God loves you. Jesus died for you and your failures, whatever they are, as he did for mine. He loves you whether you witness or not. That's his grace. You can't earn it. He loves you. He's redeemed you. He's rescued you. So it won't matter. Just drop it. Don't do it. The young man went away completely gobsmacked. A week later, the pastor was talking to a mutual friend and said, What on earth did you say to that guy? The pastor looked very worried. But the friend said, We can't stop him. He's transformed. He's telling everyone and everyone about Jesus. Do you see the point? It's only when we realize how wonderful the gospel really is that we'll want to tell anyone about it. Jesus loves us. He died for us. He longs for us. He was so indiscriminate. He even loved me and you and them. Final vision. Just turn a couple of chapters with you to a couple of uh, pages or so to chapter 7, verse 9. And verse 9, we see that the seals have been opened. And this is an insider's glimpse to the last day and whets our appetite for what we're going to do after copy. But what we see is that everything that Jesus has set out to do has been achieved. The uh, the scroll is opened, and here is the evidence. Verse 9 of chapter 7. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great crowd, multitude, that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding out palm branches in their hands. I guess if... John had had a very sophisticated video camera. He'd have been able to sort of pan over the whole crowd and zoom in and see you there, if you're Christ's. And I pray and trust that there will be people in that crowd speaking Flemish. The question is, will you help? It's going to happen. Will you help? Will you endure the scorn of the world that calls us bigots in order to reach our neighbors? Or will we rejoice in the chance to bring everyone and anyone to know Jesus' free grace and love, even on our doorstep here in Europe and in London?